Well, as we begin, I would would like to read two passages um, from two very different books. One from the book of our study this morning, which is Nahum, and the other from a a favorite children's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. One's history, obviously, one's fantasy, but they both communicate a very profound truth. Let me read to you Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. An oracle concerning Nineveh the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Is he a man? Lucy startled and asked. Mr. Beaver replied, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe then? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The minor prophets, as we've been studying them, have described for us often God as a lion. And as Nahum and C.S. Lewis remind us, by definition, then this lion is not safe. But thankfully, this lion is also good. The problem, however, is, is that human beings are not. Because what the Bible records was because sin has come into the world, disrupting our relationship with God, ruining our original design, our created design, human beings are neither safe nor good because of sin. Now, I know that word sin is something you only hear on Sunday morning sermons or dessert menus, you know, when you read about how sinfully delicious this chocolate cake is, but open any news app, spend five minutes on social media, and you'll see how real sin is, even if the word has fallen out of practical use. And God's own people were often the object of God's wrath because of our sin and because God is good. Because good, I mean the kind of good that we actually want ruling the world and calling the shots is a kind of good that will not abide sin in any form regardless of who commits it. And God will 
deal with sin. That's what the minor prophets have been encouraging us, that God will deal with it by judging it, by obliterating sin. Sin, of course, in the world around us, but also within his own people as well. And we've seen God doing that, judging the sin of his own people. Now, in our study of the minor prophets, we know that God had sent four minor prophets. And again, they're minor not because their message was, that, was less important. They're minor simply because they're, they're shorter books than the major prophets. God sent four minor prophets to the nations other than his own people, but the message was the same. Turn from your wickedness or you too will have to face the line of the tribe of Judah. Nahum it was one such prophet. He was sent to the city of Nineveh. For many of you, that city should sound very familiar, especially if you were here last year and we studied the prophet Jonah. Nineveh was the city that Jonah was sent to to proclaim God's coming judgment, but also be the vessel by which when they turned from their sin, God brought salvation to the Ninevites. But Nineveh should also be somewhat familiar because Nineveh was probably the cruelest, the meanest, the most ruthless empire of the ancient Near East, hands down. As a matter of fact, Nahum talks that, says that nobody's going to regret, when they hear of the destruction that's going to come to Nineveh, he says in Nahum 3.19, that the people are going to clap, they're going to be rejoicing, for upon whom has not come Assyria's unceasing evil. Friends, the cruelty of the Assyrians is the cruelty of the Assyrian Empire is literally, literally written in stone. When I and my family got a chance to go to England a couple years ago, uh, Lori and I was super, were so excited to go to the British Museum right there in, the, in London because they have many artifacts of biblical history. Now, what you see there, I'll explain what this stone wall is a little bit later in the message, but this is a stone relief, and you see these two men, they're not flying, or they're not diving into a pool right here. They're actually, if you look right by their feet, you can see two Assyrian soldiers, and they're basically shaving the skin right off these living, these, these men as they're torturing them to death. They often flayed their victims. Here's another one. Uh, you can't see it too much, and this is a good reason you should sit in the front row, right, because you can see better. So I circled over there in the left-hand corner. You can see an Assyrian soldier grabbing a prisoner by the tuft of their hair, and he's basically sawing through his neck. The cruelty of the Assyrians, like I said, literally in stone. Now, God loves goodness. God loves life, and because of this, like a lion, he will roar against anything that threatens either one of those things. Now, in case you're wondering, this is not a lack of love on God's behalf to act this way. In fact, God's love is expressed in his judgment of evil. The severe love of God, that's what Nahum's about. In a very kind of horrifying and terrifying vivid reality of God's judgment being cast on a people. I hope you had a chance to read it. Nahum's uh, three chapters would have taken you just over 10 minutes. Now, true, the love we see here is not the kind of love that's kind of garbed in poetry, roses, and romance, the kind of love that Hollywood would try to make a good movie out of it. The love of God we see here is, is armored in steadfastness, in follow-through, in, in firmness, the kind of love that does make for a good, strong society. God's love is a love that will do what is necessary because it counts the cost because he knows what's at stake. 
Now, if you haven't had a chance to read the book this past week, I hope you'll read it after this Sunday morning, but to get a good sense of the message, you don't have to go further than chapter one, verses seven and eight. We've already kind of read it, but let me draw your attention to it because this is really the key of Nahum. And if you get these two verses, it really frames everything we heard about God's avenging wrath in verses two through six and really frames the rest of the book. Listen to what Nahum says. This is the heart of the message. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. God is not a God to be trifled with. The only thing that matches his kindness and compassion and mercy and graciousness is his just punishment towards evil and wickedness. So let me give you Nahum in a nutshell here. It is a, only three chapters, but it packs quite a lot in there. It's got three chapters. Chapter one talks about God's sovereignty being exercised over all. Chapter two shows that sovereignty playing out as Nineveh prepares itself for judgment, and the judgment they're gonna face is uh, defeat by a, a opposing army. And then chapter three, Nineveh is judged. There are three audiences that this book speaks to. Number one, it, it speaks directly to the Assyrians. Nahum is prophesying to them, but it also speaks to the Judeans, the, the, the Israelites, and by application, it speaks to us. And the three messages in this book, number one, evil will be judged. Number two, evil will be judged because the Lord's purposes will stand. And evil will be judged, the Lord's purposes will, be, will stand because the Lord is in fact good. So those are the three chapters, those are the three audiences, those are the three messages. Let's look at them one at a time. Now, just a few years after the amazing revival that took place under Jonah the prophet, unfortunately the Assyrians resumed their cruel ways and continued their conquests of the ancient Near East. One of our elders this morning, when we're we're talking about the sermon, uh, Randy said, isn't that very uh, a glimpse that repentance, which is what happened to Nineveh and the Assyrians when Jonah came with the word. You remember our study, Jonah didn't want to bring the gospel to the Ninevites because Jonah said, I knew you would be gracious if they turned from their sin and that's exactly what happened. And, and, And what had happened in the Assyrian period was they started to experience the zenith of their growth. But as Randy pointed out, repentance is not a singular moment. Repentance is a lifestyle. It is not something you do once and you're done. Martin Luther, the reformer, in his 95 points of reformation said, number one, point number one, all of life is repentance and faith. It is not that I came to Jesus once and I'm done. It's on autopilot. It is every day turning from my sin, turning to the Lord, or we go back to our ways. And that's exactly what happened to the Assyrians. So let me kind of orient you to this next graphic just so you get a sense of what we're talking about. So obviously that's a map of the Mediterranean and the Middle East. You can recognize, uh, you can see the boot of Italy there on the left-hand side. Next to Italy, you see the Greek Isles. And so that's the Mediterranean Ocean, the Middle East. So to the the right, you can see that's probably where Israel is and modern-day Iraq, Iran, that area. But this is an ancient time. So you can see the Assyrian Empire and that purple blob is the southern kingdom of Judah. That's gonna become important in a little bit. So let me zoom in on this. This is the Assyrian Empire at the time of Jonah's preaching. Like many empires, there are seasons of ebb and flow, and they were in a season of kind of ebbing. Things were going bad. We talked about the, the earthquake, the, the, the political de- uh, turmoil, the, the military defeats they experienced, which is probably what led them to hear the message of the gospel from Jonah. And unfortunately, 
they did not heed it entirely because they continued on in their cruel, conquering ways. Let me show you the map at the time of Nahum's preaching about a century and a quarter later, 125 years later. The Assyrian Empire continued their campaign of cruelty and destruction. Clearly, God's mercy to them did not curb their hunger for power or their cruelty. In 722 BC, they decimated and destroyed and carried off into exile the northern kingdom of Israel. They continued down southerly, and and that orange blob is the southern kingdom of Israel. I can't get into it now, but if you're familiar with the prophet Isaiah and 2 Kings, Assyria could never take Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. And so they went past Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, and destroyed the capital city of Egypt, or Thebes at the time, destroying everything all around them. All during this time, however, the people of Judah, you see them there in the orange, could only sit and watch as the mighty tide of the Assyrian Empire, wave after wave, destroyed and demolished every people group, every nation around them, and every year the tide growing higher and higher. This is the context of Nahum's prophecy. He didn't bring this message when the Assyrian power was kind of weakening and he thought he could make himself seem like a prophet by forecasting what would happen. This is the height of the Assyrian empire. Look at Naaman, or Nahum chapter one, verse 12. Thus says the Lord, though they, the, the Ninevites, the Assyrians are full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. So though Assyria is at its highest power, Nineveh, the most greatest city of the time. Now just to give you a sense of what the kind of city we're talking about, Nineveh is located on the Tigris River. Uh, If you're familiar with modern geography, this is where uh, um, the city of Mosul in Iraq, maybe you've heard of Mosul in the news. This is right about in the same area, about 40 miles east of modern day Syria. Nineveh was one of the grandest and most powerful cities on earth at the time. Its size, its power, its wealth were the thing of fables. The walls alone was a good picture of its magnificence. Let me show you a picture of, a, of one of the walls that they discovered. Obviously, this was reconstructed. It's 3,000 years old, so it's not going to look that nice. So they reconstructed it to give a sense of the scale of one of the gates that would have led into Nineveh. This is not a main gate. This is just kind of a minor gate. But Nineveh had two walls. The inner wall, which would have been behind this gate, was still 30 feet taller than what you see here. It ran around the entire city, and the the width of the wall itself, you could run three chariots side by side at a full clip. So we're talking about some massive walls. On the outside of the entirety of the city was a moat about 150 feet wide, about 60 feet deep. So where this photograph is being taken, you can see right here is where where the moat would have been, and it would have been 60 feet deep. These were just to describe the walls of the city of Nineveh. It was gigantic. Nineveh had the original um, ancient wonder of the world, the hanging gardens. Nineveh had libraries. It had parks within it. They even built a 50-mile aqueduct to bring fresh water from the mountains down into the center of the city. King Sennacherib's palace, one of the famous kings of Assyria, had two square miles of stone reliefs depicting his conquests. Here's one of them. Again, this is from my iPhone, so the details aren't all that great. 
It's interesting. So this is Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. This is a little bit before uh, our time right now that we're studying. This happened in the past from Nahum. But this is describing the siege of Lachish that we see in 2 Kings chapter 18 and then 2 Chronicles chapter 32. If you were able to walk up closely, you could see the, the battles, uh, the, the, the taking down the fortifications. The interesting thing is, for you history buffs, um, kings don't boast about taking a secondary city. It's interesting that Sennacherib could never take Jerusalem, ever. And so what he had in his city on his wall, two square miles of his conquest, one of them being the biggest city they could take was Lachish, and that's because Jerusalem never fell. And the reason being is, well, read your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 18. God, because of Hezekiah reaching out to him, delivered the city of Jerusalem. So historically, kings don't record um, taking lesser cities. They only record taking the capitals. So it's interesting that all he could talk about was Lachish falling to him. Let's get back to the text. If you were the people of Judah during this time, in Nahum's day, you could not feel less confident that life was going to be okay. You saw the map. Assyria surrounded Judah, the southern kingdom, like, an, like a little island in a sea of violence. And if you were those people, you would not have any confidence that things were going to work out okay. But the Lord continues to thunder against Assyria. Let's see what he says in Nahum chapter 1, verse 14. The Lord has given commandment about you, Nineveh. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. God is sovereign in Assyria. They will be judged because goodness does not abide evil. Friends, you may be sitting here watching in your life waves and waves of problems and situations surrounding you, and you could not be less confident things are going to turn out okay. But God, as he says for years to his people, says, do not trust your circumstances. Trust in my word. That was Nahum's word to the people. Then I know you look around, you see the Assyrians, and this looks impossible, but trust in the Lord. He can deliver you. Now, you might be very well tempted to give up. At the very least, give up your faith in God. The Israelites at least had literally a prophet of God speaking the, the, the Lord's words to them. What do you have, right? You might be looking around and all you see is difficulty and problems. But friends, we have something even more precious than Nahum's words. We have all of God's words written for us at our disposal. You have a copy sitting in your lap. You don't need to rely on one prophet bringing you the word. You have all of God's words written right here. And they are just as precious as if we heard the prophet say it himself. Peter, the Lord's disciple, says this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, 2 Peter 1, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Friends, if you are in a dark place, don't let your circumstances dictate what you see. Don't let just your situation determine the things you can see. Let the very words of God illuminate your life and situation. You might be tempted to abandon your faith because of your circumstances. 
But God's word says, double down on your faith because of your circumstances. In other words, don't pull back, friends. Lean into what the Lord is doing. This is why being around God's people every week is so good for your soul. Be encouraged by the faith of others when yours is challenged. Be encouraged by lifting up your voices in our times of corporate singing. Be encouraged by the life-giving faith imparting word as it's preached, taught, prayed, and recited. Don't pull back on your faith. Lean in on it in those times. This is what the Lord says through Nahum, chapter one, verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. It might have been a reference to Nahum himself. This is what the Lord says, keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. I know what you see around you is frightening, but keep your feasts. Fulfill your vows. This is not the time to pull away. This is the time to double down. Don't let the circumstances determine what you see. Let my promises determine what you see. We get into chapter two. Assyria's destruction, we learn, is Judah's deliverance. See, Nineveh's fall is Jerusalem's rise. In chapter two of Nahum, it records the frenzy preparation that the city of Nineveh uh, is, is taking, preparing for their coming demise. And I love the literature here. In two very brief, kind of rapid fire bursts of prose, Nahum captures the quick pace, the, the, heart, heart, the, the fast heartbeat of men preparing for battle men facing their doom. Look at verse one, chapter two. In a bit of irony, the Lord calls the oppressors or the the enemy of Assyria, the scatterer. He says, the scatterer has come against you. The reason that's irony, friends, is Assyria was known when they came and destroyed a people group, they scattered all those people, separated families, sent them to the ends of the empire so that they would all be weak and they could not foment rebellion. So their policies, whenever they came to a nation, they destroyed it and sent them into exile. They scattered people everywhere. And in a bit of irony, the Lord says, guess what? There's a scatterer who's coming to you to do the same that you did to all these people. Look at, these, look at this, this quick prose right here in chapter two, verse one. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect your strength. It's kind of like you can imagine a commander yelling out, fire in the hole, watch the flank, storm the beaches, here they come. And he says it again in verse 10. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish in the loins, all faces grow pale. It's as if Nahum is watching from a far off distance and he sees the Ninevites know this is it. It is over. If you read verses one through 10, all you will read is about a city preparing for its doom. They're trying to put on a brave face, but they know their time has come. This is bad. You see, Assyria felt secure, confident in their conquests, arrogant in their success. But the Lord's purposes would stand. Friends, let's take a look at this from the other, from the other direction. When our circumstances are bad, we can be tempted to abandon our faith in the Lord, can't we? But notice that that temptation is also present when our circumstances are good. When our circumstances are good, maybe you are in a a fat and happy time of life. You know, life's good, job's secure, I'm okay, things are fine. Christianity may be good for those who, it's a kind of a crutch, maybe they need it, that's okay for them, but I don't need that, I make my own luck. 
right? Religion is a good place. It has its place, but I'm okay without it. Or maybe you actually think Jesus is good, Christianity is a good thing, but let's keep that in moderation, right? I mean, give, but don't sacrifice. Attend, but not too often. Read your Bible, don't really study it though. You can listen to the sermon, just don't think you should apply it to your life. We keep things in moderation. I wanna, after all, keep in control of my life. Things are good, I like it this way. Friends, Circumstance is a foul weather friend. In the best of situations, things can change in a moment. Don't measure how you're doing by the prosperity or lack of prosperity in your life. The Bible says measure how you're doing by how close to God you actually are. See, we tend to measure how we're doing by how well things are going or how bad things are going. The Bible says don't do that because circumstances are a foul weather friend whether they're bad or good, that's not what to ga- how to gauge it. Gauge it by how close to God you actually are. So the question we have to ask is, well, are you? Are you close to God? Whether things are going bad or things are going good, that's not the real issue. The real question you ought to be asking is, how close am I to God? And would I know if I wasn't? How close am I to God? How close are you to God? And how would you know if you weren't? Friends, have you ever thought that one of the reasons God has given Christians the local church is that people you are with together in your local community can serve as an objective barometer of your faith? In other words, friends, if the only way you assess your Christian maturity is based purely upon your own personal subjective feeling, you do not have a good gauge of how your faith is actually growing or not. Let me say that again, because I think this, is, this, this rubs right against the grain of a lot of contemporary Christianity. If the only gauge you have of how you're doing in Christ is your own personal feelings about it, that's not a reliable gauge. Friends, you do realize we can deceive ourselves, right? You do realize our potential to deceive ourselves one way or the other way. Right? Let the Word of God and the people of God help you discern how your relationship with God is going. Are there other people in your life that can confirm, you know, I see fruit in your life. Your act, I see fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. Last year, I think you would have blown your top in this situation. This year, you're totally fine. You're actually praying for that person. Friends, don't let your own feeling of how you're doing, one way or the other, either crush you down or overly lift you up. Let God's word, let God's people help you discern how that relationship with God is going. Do not trust your own personal assessment and circumstances alone. Trust the resources that God has given you as a Christian. Ask the people around you, are you seeing fruit of the Holy Spirit in my life? Do you see me living like Jesus Christ? And don't just ask your friends. Don't just ask the people who like you. Ask people who may not know you that you might be serving with, that just may be in fellowship with you, that watch you, that are in your your covenant community here at Christ Community Church. Ask, do you see me being like Jesus? Because that's what I want more than anything. The Assyrians, obviously, did neither of these and were very far for a very long time. They had an amazing revival, 
that God sent them Jonah and they repented and God blessed. Historically, we see the Assyrian kingdom began to, it came out of its political instability, it settled things down, and with their successes, what did they do though? They forgot and they continued to be what they once were. And God says to them in chapter two, verse 13, in chapter three, verse five, probably the worst thing a person or people can hear coming from the lips of God, he says, behold, I am against you. Friends, that's frightening. To have God, not just morally neutral to you, but for the Lord to say, behold, I am against you. And to make the point even clearer, in effect, God says to the Ninevites, of all people who should have known better, of all people who should know that there's no such thing as an unconquerable, unconquerable people, of all people who should know that no city is indestructible, you should have known. Why? Because they destroyed every city and conquered every people. And those people in those cities felt that they were invincible and they could not be conquered. And Assyria rolled through them. But our successes have a way of making us uh, not humble. Our successes have a way of making us arrogant, right? And that's exactly what happened to the Assyrians. The Lord says in chapter three, take a look at chapter three, verse eight through 10, as a way to make the point. He says, look, you did it to Thebes. Why did you not think this could happen to you? Chapter three, verse eight. Are you better Ninevites than Thebes, the capital of Egypt at that time? that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea and water her wall. Cush, which was another people group, was her strength. Egypt too, so again, I know that seems confusing, but remember, we're not talking about the nation states as we understand them. Thebes was the capital of Egypt, but Egypt still had a lot of factions and tribes and clans, so he's talking about their alliances here. Put and the Libyans were her helpers as well. Verse 10, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. Her honored men, for her honored men, lots were cast. They were selling their, their, their kings, their, their aristocrats into slavery, and all her great men were bound in chains. So of all the people who should have known not to trust their circumstances, not to trust their successes, you Assyrians should have known better because you were the people that destroyed everyone else's successes. You were the fear of everyone else's circumstances. And now judgment has come. Roughly, uh, probably about 15 to 20 years after the book of Nahum was written, the Babylonians and the Medes created a coalition, marched against Nineveh, and decimated it in 612 BC. And they did it pretty much the exact way Nahum prophesied that they would. I want you to take you to Nahum chapter one, verse eight. So, yeah, Nahum chapter one, verse eight. Nahum writes, with an overflowing flood, he will make a a complete end of of his adversaries. In chapter two, verse six, Nahum talks about the river gates are opened and the palace melts away. Chapter two, verse eight, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters will run away. And then we read just in in chapter three, verses eight through 10, how Thebes trusted in in their kind of waterways as security. The Nile was kind of like a natural moat. They believed that that would keep them safe. That didn't do anything to stop the Assyrians. Basically, the Assyrians fell, Nineveh fell in the way that Nahum recorded. The ancient Greek historian, 
Diodorus Seculus in his massive ancient history called Bibliotheca Historica, which means the, the book of history. This is where we get our knowledge of um, the, the Trojan Wars, some of uh, the fall of Troy, a little bit of uh, Caesar's Gaelic Wars and Alexander the Great. Some of our knowledge comes from this historian. He records Nineveh falling in just the same way at the hands of the Babylonians and the Medes. The floodwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates had inundated a portion of the city, broke down the walls, and furthermore, uh, the Babylonian Chronicles, we have parts of that in the British Museum in London, records how the Babylonians and Medes used the Assyrian irrigation aqueducts to actually flood the city, weaken the defenses, and then bring their men, pull out the water, bring their men under the walls into the city itself, destroying Nineveh. Along with Nineveh, Assyria faded from history after 612 BC. Nineveh passed with unusual speed, friends, from the very center of history to almost being entirely forgotten. Its location became lost to human memory, and the city actually became a matter of speculation for 2,000 years. Now, people knew of Nineveh because of the writings of Nahum and the Babylonian Chronicles talked about the city, but for 2,000 years, no one even knew where it was. It was completely destroyed until 1842 when archaeologists rediscovered it. Well, ancient empires and long-forgotten people might be interesting, but what about us, right? What does this have to do with us? Now, friends, these times have changed and these people have long since passed, but Malachi 3 says, I, the Lord, do not change. Psalm 102 says, you are the same, your years have no end. Friends, what that means is this lion is still not safe. I know in, in evangelical, contemporary evangelical culture, this is an aspect of God we don't talk about. But friends, this lion is still not safe. If we persist in our sin, if we persist in rebellion against him and disobedience against the Lord, the wrath that we see poured out on the Ninevites is merely a precursor to the wrath that's gonna be poured out on all and any who oppose him. That's what Nahum is trying to tell us. God is no respecter of people, whether it's his own people or others. His wrath will be poured out on evil because he's a lion and he's not safe. But what Nahum also tells us is he's also good. And Nahum 1.7 says that he is a stronghold in the day of trouble and he knows those who take refuge in him. So two things, friends, need to happen before a refuge actually works. Number one, you have to realize there's danger, right? No one runs into a refuge because they have nothing better to do. You go into a refuge because you know there's danger and ruin outside. That's why you need a refuge. So the first thing that needs to happen is to recognize I need a refuge. Friends, do you see life apart from God as dangerous? Do you see life lived without any concern for his character, for his word, for his commandments, as perilous to your own soul? Do you really recognize how dangerous it is to be opposing the holiness of God with our humanistic arrogance, to live life as if I am the master of my destiny, to not realize I'm a created being for his glory and all that I have all that you have is a gift to you from him to be used as he desires. Friends, are you done with that lonely self-reliance? Do you see you need a refuge? 
First, the first thing we have to do is recognize, man, I need a refuge. I need a stronghold to go because out there is ruin and destruction. Number two, the second thing you have to do is actually run into that refuge, right? Knowing what you should do and actually doing it are not the same thing. Do you recognize you need a refuge and are you willing to run into it? The writer from the Hebrews sets us up beautifully for our series. He says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets like Nahum. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus, that's the son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And listen to what he says. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why? And he says it there in verse 30. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, if your burden is too heavy, why don't you exchange it for Christ's? Friends, for God to be good, all evil must be judged or else he would not be good. And the problem is we're not good, but yet God loves us still. There's the dilemma, what now? God cannot deny himself, he must judge evil and so he has by sending Jesus Christ to bear the penalty for our evil, to bear the penalty for our sin so that we could be safe. And Matthew 11 is a reminder that Jesus is saying, look, all who need refuge, come to me. I will be your refuge. Sin will never be safe in the presence of God because God is too holy, he's too good, he's too just to allow it. The only way we can be in his presence is if we have no sin. And the only way we can have no sin is for someone to remove that from us. Furthermore, only righteousness can exist in God's presence. So not only do we need someone to take away our sin, we need someone to make us righteous because God's law needs to be satisfied. Well, God solved all that in Jesus Christ. Paul writes, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. If you are in Christ, you no longer have to fear this line will not be dangerous, not to you at least, because he is good to all those who call him Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to study Nahum. And at first glance, we wonder what Assyrians have to do with us, but we recognize we are the same as the Assyrians and the Israelites, easily tempted to judge our lives by our circumstances and forget that it's not our circumstances that matter, but what your word says that matters. Father, help us to not judge the quality of our lives by our prosperity or lack thereof, but the quality of our relationship with you. Thank you that through Christ, you made having relationship with you possible. Thank you for the grace we have in the gospel. Thank you that you do not compromise your goodness or your love because of our sin, but you have dealt with it in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for these things in his name. Amen.